Amen. We've been talking about growing, especially spiritually. And you can turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 8. That's where we're headed. But I just want to quickly review and go over some things just to kind of, I know we've talked about this for weeks, but I want to bring our, our focus in together at the same time, on this, kind of on the same page. And, and we've been talking about growing, and we, we're, we're specifically talking about the aspect of growth that involves stability. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 4, I guess around verse 15 or 14, it says that we are no longer to be children. And then it talks about one of the aspects of what it's like to be a child, which is to be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And the principle in there is when something is being tossed around or moved off of its course, that it's not, they're not in control. And so uh, we talked about it, shared with you the story of how I've, uh, it got a little more detail last week, uh, where in a, in a small boat I had that was out in the Narragansett Bay a few years ago and, and hit, hit a rock that was under the water. I didn't see it. And it, it sheared off the, 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 the drive shaft up into the outdrive. And so suddenly this 180 horsepower engine had no power. And I'm sitting out there in Narragansett Bay. Now, whereas before I had a clear purpose and direction and the ability to get there, now I'm sitting there subject to the wind and the waves and the, and the, and the, uh, and the current. I have no control. I'm out there in the boat. I'm there, but I, have no, I, I no longer can accomplish the purpose that I had. And that's the enemy's desire for you, is to pull you off course and have you blown around by the circumstances of life. And if you've been alive for very long and you've been a Christian for very long, you understand that there are circumstances of life. And there shouldn't be shocking to us because the, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. So why are we shocked when it happens? Because it's one of the promises. You know, I've never seen it in one of these promise cards or promise boxes because it just happens. In this world you will have tribulation. You know, we saw in James chapter 1 where he says, my brother, he tells us what to do. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's the same word. Tribulation, that's the same word testing. It's pressure. Because no, the understanding this, that the trying of your faith produces something. So we saw that what, what the trials and the tr- pressures come to do is they come to test your faith. And when your faith is tested, if you will apply your faith against that trial, and that's what we're talking about, that's part of how you mature. Because part of the maturing process is to take God's Word and to absorb God's Word into you. You grow by consuming God's Word, just as your physical body grows by consuming food, your spiritual being grows by consuming God's Word. And it's not just enough to read it. It's not just enough that you've got to meditate on it, but then what we've been talking about is you have to act on it. And that's the applying of your faith. That's the taking God's word and becoming what James 2 says, becoming, in verse 22, a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And we saw that James says if you not just hear the word, but then you act upon that word, you will be blessed in what you do. We saw that in in Matthew chapter 7, we saw that Jesus himself said that when you hear the word and you don't do it, you're building your life on the sand. And when the storms of life come, your life will not stand, not because of the structure you built, but because of the foundation it was built upon. And Jesus says that foundation is hearing the word of God and then acting on that word of God. And then the second example he uses is a man heard the same word of God, but this person did the word of God. They heard it with the intention of applying it in their life. And as they did that, when the storms of life came against them, instead of getting weaker, they got stronger. So the storms of life are an opportunity for you to grow. But it's what you choose to do with it that makes the difference. If you choose to allow that storm of life to blow you off course, and by mean blowing off your course, 
blow you out of church, blow you, you know, well, I'm going to, you pull back from God, you get angry, you get disappointed, you get hurt. And those are normal human reactions and emotions. But we, if we just live by our normal human re- reactions and emotions, then you will be blown off course. The Bible warns us in these last days, many, not a few, many will be pulled away. Many will be deceived and pulled off course. And I believe one of the things that will pull people off course more than anything else is the pressures of life and what they choose to do with it. And this is why I believe that God got a hold of me a few weeks ago and said, I want you to stop what you're doing now and I want you to, to, to strengthen these people, strengthen this congregation in the word of faith because that is what will help them to stand in the trials of life that they're going through now. But what you're going through now is just training and preparation and most likely for what is to come. And so this is very important that we heed God's voice and we heed His word. In fact, Hebrews 3 says, we were talking about this on Wednesday nights, we're talking about faith Wednesday nights and faith Sunday morning. That's what God told me to do. Saturate in faith. Saturate yourself in it and saturate this congregation in it. And so, um, so, so it, on, on Hebrews 3 says, Today if you hear the, His voice, do not harden your hearts, which means don't turn it out, don't tune it out, but realize God's saying something to us. So it behooves us to listen to Him. And so we've seen that then in James goes on to say that, that, um, that, that if you lack wisdom, and, and in the context is wisdom about what we're going through and how to go through it, if you lack wisdom, then we're to ask of God who gives to all men liberally, generously, and he will not get mad at you for asking. In other words, with God, there's no such thing as a stupid question. How can there be a stupid question? He knows everything. And we know very little. And he knows how little we know. We're the ones just discovering how little we know. So God says, don't, don't be, don't, I'm not going to upbraid you. I'm not going to laugh at you or make fun of you or criticize you for asking any question. But I can't give you to you if you don't ask. So ask, he said, but, but here's the key, nothing doubting. Because he says, the man that doubts is like the wind of the waves, the wind blowing the waves around in the sea. And there again, being tossed to and fro. There again is that concept of being out on the water and not having control, being blown off course by the wind and by the waves. And so we see that one of the signs of immaturity, and by that again I don't mean a, a judgment about ourselves because God's speaking this to me too. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a sign of where I need to grow, of where we all need to grow, is to become stable. Because we saw in James chapter 1, he says, the trying of your faith, if you'll apply it against the trial, produces steadfastness. That means not easily moved. And we saw the Apostle Paul, how the Apostle Paul was given an assignment by God and he was, went through all kinds of difficulties and they didn't blow him off course. They didn't stop him. They didn't slow him down. Why? Because he learned to do what we're learning to do. He took God's word and he acted upon God's word. And so we're learning this very key concept of, of how to go through a trial and how to go through a test and come out victorious and not blown off course, not blown, pulled away from God, not, not thrown on the, on, the, on, the, on the trash heap, which you can be if you just give in to your emotions. And, and because understand that there's an enemy of your soul, that there's an enemy of your soul, and his name is Satan. And the Bible, Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, he only comes to steal kill and destroy. So understand this, that he is not passive about you. There are demonic forces out there trying to pull you out of the will of God, to try to pull you out of the Bible, to try to pull you away from God so that you can try to handle your life on your own because he knows if he has a Christian trying to handle their life on their own, he's got them. 
because you can't handle your life on your own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the enemy's goal is to get you apart from him, operating apart from him, talking apart from him, thinking apart from him, and acting apart from him. And so we see that James goes on to say, because if you, are, if you doubt, then you are a double-minded man. We talked last week what it means to be double-minded. Double-minded means being of two minds about the same thing. And what that means specifically in this application is you'll read your Bible, or you'll hear a message, and like a wonderful message on Wednesday night about fear and how to avoid fear and the, and the doorways to fear that, that Pastor John Angelina brought to us. It was a wonderful message. And, and, and then we hear that. Now what do we do with that word? And he says, if you hear that word and then you begin to act on it, what happens? We hear that word, we get excited, and we go out there, and we get up the next morning, and some new thing happens in our life, and the thoughts begin to attack us that we should be afraid. Understand this, and I've mentioned this to you before, that, that what happens is when, when you get a bad report or a phone call that you're not expecting, or you open your mail and there's an unexpected bill, or something like that, or you notice a symptom in your body, that's simply information. It's what your mind does with that that produces the fear or faith. It's what your mind... So you have the choice of how you're going to respond to that situation or react to it. That's your choice. You cannot control what comes against you, but you can control what you do with it. You can control what you do with it. And Wednesday night we heard some things about taking control of what we do with it. And so James tells us that, that when we simply react to it, we become double-minded. So we're in church, or we read our Bible in the morning, and we, hear, we get encouraged by words of faith, and we get all confident. We, you know, the old expression is you're going to charge hell with a water pistol. You know, we come out of that time in church, you know, I can do this, I can make it. And then something comes to your senses to tell you that that's not true. And now you begin to say, well, I don't know whether that's true or not. We begin to question. And then we go back and forth. Well, God says, yeah, I know, but, you know, I know somebody that tried that and they died. Yeah, but God's word says that. Yeah, but, you know, uh, I know somebody that, that, that tied and, and, they, and they lost their job. Yeah, I, you know, we go back and forth. Yeah, I know what God's word says, but. I know what God's word says, but. And we looked in Genesis chapter 3 and saw that's not all. That's an old, old tactic. In fact, the very first thing Satan ever did to man was to come and challenge God's word to them. The very first thing he ever said to a human being was, has God said? And that's a key to us because it shows us that in our enemy's mind, he knows what the most important defense we have, and that's God's word and to obey God's word. So that's what he attacked. So that's what we've come through. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. This is something we've talked about before. I said, I said Deuteronomy 8. What did you think I said? 28? Uh, see, you're listening. I'm just testing. Deuteronomy 8. And we talked about this before, but this is the children of Israel. They're, they're about to enter the promised land. This is 40 years after they left Egypt. And we've seen this. Verse 3. He's talking about what he took them through. Well, let's go to verse 2. So you shall remember the Lord your God who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you that, that, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you. We talked about the fact that humbling does not mean beating down. It means helping us to see what we can do and who we are apart from God. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger 
He didn't take food away from them. He took the food away from them they wanted. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What we talked about there is, and this is where we want to begin today, is that God designed us spiritually to live on his word. His word is the food by which you grow. His word is also your protection. God has provided a protection, something that will get you through the trials and tests of life. And that is His word. But it's not just having His word, it's doing His word. And that's why we see in James chapter 1, He says that it is your faith that the trial comes to test. And here's a case where God set up a test for them. Many of the trials that we go through, we created. We created it by our own laziness. We created it by our own stubbornness. We created it because we weren't willing to listen to somebody. We created it because we just didn't know any, something. We created it out of ignorance. But many of the things we're going through in life today are situations we create. Some of them we created just with the words of our mouth. We just said, you know, oh my, you know, you know I know I'm not going to make it to a certain age or whatever. You, words, you just listen to the words of your mouth are so important. The words of your mouth. We're going to talk about that later on. But right now, this is what we're focusing on. So God's protection in your life is He's given you His Word. But it's what you do with His Word that determines whether you stand steadfast or not. Understand this. This is a process. And so don't condemn yourself if today you're double-minded. Don't condemn yourself if you had a week where you've really struggled. Because if you pick up the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, you'll see a time when Paul struggled also. He said he despaired even of his own life. But Paul didn't quit. When he despaired even of his own life because of the thing he was going through, he still turned to God and expected God to be his comfort. So he didn't walk away from God. He clung to his God even though he didn't understand why certain things were happening. He got closer to God instead of pulling away from him. So understand this is a process. It's not something you're going to learn or master overnight. But you won't learn it and you won't master if you don't do it. So just start where you are and let God meet you where you are and take God's word that you know and that you hear, especially the word that you hear inside of you. That's the word the Spirit of God is speaking to you. And then just begin to act on that to the best of your ability. So here we see a people that God is telling you what he did. He's talking about their fathers because there's the, the generation that came out of Egypt, which are the ones we're going to focus on today, they didn't make it into the promised land. God had to, through what we're going to look at today, God had to say, you stay here in the wilderness for another 39 years because it's only your children I'm going to be able to get into the promised land. And, and because, but notice it was a promised land. He's telling them now, what I took you through is this. I humbled your fathers in the wilderness by making, by humbled them by making them hungry. And again, we've talked about this before. But he didn't take food away from them and starve them for 40 years. You can't, he couldn't have done that. What he did is he put them in a place where they couldn't supply their own food. Because they just lived for 430 years in a nation where their food was supplied for them. See, they were fed every day, leeks and onions and other food. That doesn't sound so exciting to me, but they obviously liked it because that's what they wanted to go back to. Everybody to their own taste, okay? <laughs> but, but they were servants and slaves in Egypt. And although they were worked all, long hours and t- had impossible tasks to perform, their physical needs were met. And here's a lesson in this. Because what happened is they became soft 
in their faith. They didn't trust God. They trusted the government to supply what they needed. Now, the government supplied what they needed, but took a terrible toss, a toll for that. They took their freedom away from them. And they, they, they made them do things they didn't want to do. And so they were slaves in Egypt, but while they were slaves in Egypt, their physical needs were taken care of. Now they're out in the wilderness, and God has to say, I've got to get that habit out of you. I've got to teach you to trust me as your source and not the government or not people. So here's what God did. He had them go through a land that was barren. There were no trees. There were no, there were no, you know, play. They couldn't, the ground was not soil. The ground was hard and rock. And so what God says is what I'm going to do is I'm going to supply your food. So every morning when you get up, you go out and and when the dew fell in the morning, what you'll find is there'll be a substance out there. And I want you to collect that substance and you, if you need it and you, and you take care of it properly and you bake it, it will be dough for bread. But here's the trick. Trick's not a good word. Here's the test. You can only collect today's worth. If you try to collect tomorrow's worth, what will happen is tomorrow's will rot. Because what the temptation of human flesh is, all right, God's provided something for me, so I want to hold on to as much of it as I can because I can see it. See that? They call it manna. Manna is the Hebrew word for what is this stuff. And so they, they brought it in and they could see what it was. You thought it was a great spiritual term, didn't you? It just means, I don't know what this stuff is. What is it? It's what God provided. And so they could collect one day's worth, but the temptation was to collect two days' worth because they could see it. See, it's interesting. God didn't just give them one day's worth out there. He gave them enough that they collect several days' worth, but they had to choose to only obey Him and collect one day's worth. And not what, they're, what they wanted to do, which was to collect two days. That way I know tomorrow's taken care of also. I don't have to trust God for tomorrow. I can just, I just got to trust Him for today. I think Jesus says something about that in John, Matthew chapter 6. He says, sufficient for today is the evil thereof. In other words, don't worry about tomorrow. God will take care of you tomorrow. Just walk with Him today. And here He's trying to teach their predecessors, the same lesson. And just to show them, that's not the only reason, but just to show them that it it didn't have to be that way, he says on the sixth day, collect two days worth. And, And that second day's worth, because the next day's the Sabbath and they can't go out and collect it. And that second day's worth did not rot. Why? Because God told them to collect it. So God was disciplining them to do exactly what he said No more and no less. And he was training them to trust him. See, when you obey his word, you're trusting him. When you hear his word and then go do something else, it's because you don't trust him. You You prove how much you trust him, not by what you say, but by what you do but by what you do. So God was training them to learn to trust Him. And if you read on in this chapter, and we will not, it was so when they came into the land that was now flowing with milk and honey and all kinds of food and resources that they could see and they could touch, that they would still recognize that man does not live by these things they can see, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God.
so that then when they became rich and prosperous and God richly blessed them, it would not pull them away from him, but they would know that everything they had came from this God that they had spent these years learning to trust for their basic needs every day. Of course, what happens is they get out there and they don't want to do that. Of course, they can't help it because there's no other alternative out there. There are some of you that are in a place where you have to trust God because there's no other alternative. The doctors have told you, we don't know what to do. But God does. Your bank has told you it's too late. There's nothing else that can be done. But God has a way. And so what their instinct was to was look back at what they had in Egypt. And when the pressure got hard on them, what came out of their mouth every time was, we should never have left Egypt. We had it so wonderful in Egypt. And we're going to look at an example of that this morning. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. I want to show you because the principle here is this. It's very simple. We're talking about hearing God's word and then doing what God said or trusting what God said. So in every example, what we're going to look for is what God said, first of all. Because if you're going to step out on something and you don't know what God said, you may be stepping out on your own word and not God's word. And that's called foolishness or presumption. You can't just say anything and say, well, God's going to do it. You've got to find what God promised you and then step out on that. Unless God spoke something specifically to you, you've got to have God's word on it. Because he didn't say, I'm training you because I want you to know that man does not live by his own words. No, he said, it's man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we're going to look at what God said, and then we're going to look at whether they trusted what God said or whether they trusted what they could see. Because remember, it's your senses that are battling against what God said. Your senses are battling against what God says. And you have a choice of whether you're going to believe what God says or you're going to believe what your senses say. And double-mindedness is when I say, yes, I see what God says, I believe what God says, and then my senses scream at me and says, yeah, but the opposite is true, and then I go listen to my senses and believe my senses. And that's what we talked about last week. That's when we become double-minded, because James goes on to say, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And that's what we're talking about, developing stability and maturing in stability. All right, Exodus chapter 2. And let's look at verse 23. Now what's happened here is, is the children of Israel have, are in bondage in Egypt. They've gone down into Egypt because God sent them there to supply their food for them in a season. And they overstayed their need to be there. We don't have time to go into that this morning. In the meantime, chapter 2 talks about Moses' birth. It talks about him fleeing into Midian, which is, which is basically Saudi Arabia today. And then we're going to look at verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged or remembered them. 
So it says he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac. His covenant were promises that God made to their forefathers that he would provide what they needed, that he would provide for them. And when they cried out to God, he remembered... Now, understand, when the Bible says God remembered something, he said, it's not because God had a senior moment. And just, you know, he's so busy with so many people to listen to all the time that he... forgot what I said to Abraham. No, the word remember is a covenant term. Which, because God doesn't forget anything. The word remembered means God began to act on what he had promised before. But notice what triggered him to do it was they cried out to him. And God remembers the promise. He, he moves again on the promise that he had made generations before to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Understand this, God's word is eternal. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that, that, the, that, the, that our flesh is like the flowers of the grass and the flowers of the earth and the grass. It, it, it burns up and it, you know, it doesn't last long. It, it's here today and gone tomorrow. But God's word endures forever. His word endures forever. But what are you hooked your life to? What are you basing your life on? Are you basing your life on the works of your flesh? Because that won't last. But if you're basing your life on the words and promises of God, that's a firm foundation. And so here we see that they made a, that God remembers His promise. They cried out to Him. I also want you to see this because I want you to see that their deliverance is something they asked for. And God obviously wanted to provide it for them, but this is their deliverance that they asked for, because what we're going to see is they had a short memory. They get out there under pressure, and they forget they asked to get out there, and they want to go back to Egypt again. All right. Now, this is an important story for us, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, this story is not in the Bible to entertain us. This story is in the Bible as an example for us. So if God's put this story in the Bible as an example for us, then it has a significance and an importance to us. This is not just an historical account of something. This has meaning and application in our lives today. Okay. So let's go now over to um, Exodus chapter 14. What's happened now is Moses has come back from his encounter with God um, and God has told him that he heard the cry of the people and he's sending Moses to deliver him and he's supposed to go and he's supposed to tell Pharaoh to let my people go and he, Pharaoh's not going to let them go so easily and they go through ten different tests, ten different challenges to Pharaoh's authority and finally the last one of course is, is, where, where, the, is where the firstborn of everything in Egypt dies under a plague. And the Passover is instituted, and by the but here again, again here it is again. God provided a protection for His people, because He told Moses, He said, "In this night, what you're to do is you're to take a lamb, a lamb that's been inspected, a lamb that has no blemish, and you you are to 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 kill it, take its blood, pour, put the blood on the on the doorpost of the house, and then you're to roast that lamb and eat all of it. And of course, that's the Passover." And it says, he says that when you do that, when this, when this plague comes upon the, the, all of Egypt to destroy the firstborn, be, uh, because what's going to happen is that when the lambs see, when the, that, that plague sees that blood, they will pass over that house. So God was providing a way out if they obeyed his word. Those that obeyed his word 
heard his word and obeyed it, were protected. Those that did not, were not protected. And so now they've been delivered. The Pharaoh has said, that's it, get out of here. He's released all of them. They, they leave with great rejoicing. And now they've come to the Red Sea. God's promised them that they're free and they're going to be delivered. And now they come to the Red Sea. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp near whatever that place is by Megal. And the sea called opposite Baal, Zephnon. And you shall camp it before the sea. That's the people. And Pharaoh, look, God's telling them ahead of time what's going to happen. And Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, Well, they're bewildered by the land, and the wilderness has closed them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We're not going to talk about why today, but we can talk about that some other time. So that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this? In other words, why do, why do we let those people go? What were we thinking? Verse 6. So he made ready his chariots and took his people with him. And he took 600 choice or best chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel, look at this, and the children of Israel, they went out with great boldness. We've heard from God. God's delivered us. God set us free. What a great message in church we heard today. I'm going to go boldly out into my day. I'm going to go boldly out into my life. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who saved me. We can do all things through Christ who who strengthens me. I know what the Word of God says. I'm going to go with boldness into my day. I'm going to go with boldness into my life. That's what they were. They are full of boldness because they'd just been freed. But they didn't realize that their enemy had a snare prepared for them. They didn't realize it. It's easy to be bold and trust God when everything's going well. It's easy to feel strong and encouraged when we're with one another among believers. And that's one of the reasons we need to come together because we continue to strengthen and re-strengthen each other and refresh each other. And so they, have, they did this with boldness. They marched out with a boldness and confidence. But we're going to see in a few minutes their confidence was really not in God. Their confidence was in their experience and their circumstances because right now they have nobody stopping them. Verse 9. So the Egyptians pursued them and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horses and his army overtook them camping by the sea of... I'll try this now. Pi-Hirath, before Baal-Zephanim. And when Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel, lifted up their... When Pharaoh knew, drew near, look at these words, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. What do you do with your eyes? You see what's actually out there. Lifted up their eyes, and behold, this is what they saw, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were afraid. Remember, we've talked about this. They lifted up their eyes. They're confident and bold because they've now been set free. Because their last memory of Pharaoh and his army was they were, they were, they, their, their firstborn were killed and they threw them out of Egypt. 
And as far as they know, their enemy's gone behind them. So they're feeling confident and bold in their circumstances. And now the, the ground begins to rumble. They feel the ground rumbling a little bit. And they turn around and they lift up their eyes. And all their eyes do is see information. Their eyes seize Pharaoh's chariots with clouds of smoke behind them bearing down on them. That's what they see. It's their choice what they do with that information. God has said, I have set you free. And they've seen ten incredible miracles performed to, to the land of... And they experienced some of them by which God delivered them. They've experienced His power and His might. And so they go out with great boldness. They're standing on what... They think they're standing on what God's done for them. And now their eyes look up and they see the enemy bearing... They see the enemy bearing down on them. And it's what they choose to do with that information that determines what happens to them. And what do they do? It says, and they were afraid. That means they must have interpreted those chariots as meaning they weren't going to make it. Now, God has said, I have set you free. That's what God said. That's God's word. Now, their senses are telling them they're not going to make it. And they're going to be moved by what their senses tell us. They're allowing their senses to override the word that God gave them. And watch what happens. Because I want to show you here how God handles that. It's interesting. Okay. Verse 11. So they said to Moses, so they get panicked and they go to their leader. Because there are no gra- Now look at what comes out of their mouth. Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us out here to die in the wilderness? Wait a minute, whose idea was this to begin with? This was their idea. How quickly they've forgotten what it was like. Have you taken us out here to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Like he dragged them all. Like one man dragged five million people out. But see, when your eyes, when your, when your, when your trust is in your senses, you'll be blown whichever way those senses, whatever those senses are seeing last. So when they saw the miracles in Egypt and they see Pharaoh's let them go, they leave with boldness. Why? Because what they see tells them they're going to be free. Now, in the midst of those circumstances, there's another circumstance that's arisen to tell them just the opposite, to tell them they're going to die, they're not going to make it. So where do they They blow with this wind now. We're going to die. Why? And when they do it, they've got to blame somebody. So first of all, they blame Moses and then they blame God. Unstable. Woman, they're trusting. Because the reason is they're trusting in what they see. Although they know what God's done, their trust and their confidence is in what their senses are telling them, not in what God has said. So now they're complaining about God. Verse 12, is this not the word we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? That's a lie. They cried out. Nobody made them leave. 
They cried out to be delivered. And now, see, but again, when you yield to fear, when you yield, you're capable of believing anything. It was better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will see again no more forever. Now, if you go back and study this and look for where God told Moses that, you won't find it. Why won't you find it? Because Moses didn't need God to tell him that. Because God had told him he was delivering this people into the promised land. God told him, you are to take my people and lead them into the promised land. See, sometimes God doesn't tell you every little step of the way what to do. Because he's already told you where it's going to end up. I've learned that when an emergency comes up to not tell God how to solve it. I don't care. I just want to, be over, I just want to get out of it. I want to be delivered. Let him worry about how. Let him figure out how, how he wants to do it. And so he didn't need God to say, now what's going to happen, Moses? He's already told him Pharaoh's going to come after you. But he didn't tell him what to do. He just says Pharaoh's going to come after you. So Moses is saying, don't be afraid. Stand still and see. Now Moses is telling him to look at something. They're already in trouble because of what they're looking at. Now Moses is coming to but he's telling them to look at something that these natural eyes can't see yet. Notice the first thing he says is, stand still. Stop bouncing back and forth. Dig your heels in and stand still and see or look for, expect the salvation of your God. Look for it. See it. If you turn to second, don't do it now, but turn, you go to Second Chronicles chapter 20, which is the story of Jehoshaphat. They get out and they've got three armies coming and bearing in to destroy them. And God tells them what to do. He goes to, he says, Joshua, Jehoshaphat was afraid, but he went to see God. See, okay, fear, you can't help the initial fear, it's what you do with it. He took it to God. And he said, what do we do? And in that case, they set a fast and they sought God for an answer. And God told them what to do. And when they got out to the battlefield, Jehoshaphat says, stand, set, and see the salvation of your God. Stand. In other words, stop moving back and forth. Set yourself and expect to see God. Look for God's salvation. Set your eyes not on the circumstances, not on what your senses are telling you, but set your eyes on what God has promised you and don't move off of it. So that's what Moses had in his heart here. But see, one of the things we've looked at in in Psalm 103, verse 7, it says, the children of Israel knew God's deeds but Moses knew his ways. Moses knew what God was like because he'd listened to his word and obeyed his word. Israel had just seen his deeds. Verse 14, The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now God speaks. (laughs) Actually, I think Moses is doing pretty well here. You've got to realize, you've got five million, six million, we don't know exactly. We know it's 600 fighting men. That's the only count we have. So you can extrapolate from that. They've got family, they've got relatives, outlaws, in-laws. You know, so there may be anywhere from four to six million people. They're all gathered around Moses 
complaining and crying out to God to him to take him back. Moses has made this bold statement of faith. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's pretty good. Watch what God says. God addresses Moses. I love this. <laughs> Verse 4 15. And the Lord says to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? In other words, why are we having a discussion here? Well, I mean, God. I mean, I know they don't affect you, but they're real soldiers. And those are real spears, and they're getting real close. And these people, they're real too. And they're mad at me. This wasn't my idea. I was content. My wife and children, I was a shepherd. You're the one that came to me. All the pressure's on me. God says, why are you talking to me? Uh, now look what he says. Why are, you ta- why are we having this conversation? Why do you try to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Because what had God said? He said, I'm giving you that land. In other words, from God's perspective... What are those soldiers? They don't mean anything. God has said, I'll give you the land. But between the place, the thing God's promised them, there's a major obstacle. There's the Red Sea. And there's pressure in their lives right now telling them that they're not going to make it. And they've got to choose which they're going to listen to. And God's saying, He hasn't backed off His promise. He's not crying with them. He's not feeling sorry for them. He's not saying, I know it's tough under this pressure. He's saying, why are you not going forward? But God, there's an obstacle there. You see, when God said go somewhere, implicit in that is He'll take care of the obstacles. That's why Jesus, when He's told Him to go to the other side, and He's asleep on the back of the boat. Why? He said, go to the other side. He didn't say go halfway and we'll sink. See, this is what I, this, it is humor. We need to laugh because we're laughing ourselves. But God's word is serious. He means what he says. In fact, if we took the time to study it, what you would find is that the power to produce what he said is in his words. How did he create everything? Let there be. He simply released the innate power in him. With his, he didn't have to yell and scream and jump up and down and sweat and spit. And, you know, he didn't have to work up it. He just, with the power, he is absolute power. Absolute power. And so when God says something's going to happen, it is going to happen. The only condition is we have to be in the place where he says it's going to happen. To do that, we have to trust more in what God said than what we see. So God's saying, why are you talking to me? Take the children of Israel and go forward. Oh, that little sea, take the rod that's in your hand. 
and holds it out. And of course, you know the story. He holds it out. The seas parted, and they walk across on dry land. When they get over, and I don't know how long it takes to take five million people across the Red Sea. But, but while they're walking across, something's getting in their senses because it says the, the sea is piled up on either side of them, and they're walking on dry land. So there's a wall of water on their left, and there's a wall of water on their right. In their senses, what God will do. But we'll see when you live by your senses, it, it doesn't last long. It, it's as long as the next information that comes to your senses. And they went across, and when they finished coming across, Pharaoh's soldiers were bold enough to come down in there, and God just withdrew his breath. And they watched their enemy swallowed up and drowned right in front of them in one day. Just what Moses said. Okay. Now let's move forward a little bit, and we'll just get into this now. Let's go now to Numbers chapter 13. They get out in the wilderness. God takes them down, I think it's three months down to Mount Sinai. In Mount Sinai, God gives Moses instructions to construct the tabernacle. And, uh, and then has Moses bring the people around the base of the mountain. It's in Exodus 19, I think it is. And, and God wants to introduce himself to the people and they get afraid and, and pull away. And, and uh, so God takes them around after this whole experience, which is all to prepare them. And they come now up to the edge of the promised land. And let's go to Numbers 13. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll just see how far we get today. Well, let's... Let, 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 no, we're going to start, not going to start in verse 1. We're going to start in verse 26. What's happened is they get up there, and they send spies into the land. One from each tribe, 12 spies. And they go into this land, and they check it out to see what's in there. And they come back with this report that everything God said about it was true. So they come back and they go into one valley called Eshkol. And they come back with a cl- one cluster of grapes that's so big that they've got to put it on a pole over the shoulders of two men to carry it back. So they brought back physical, tangible evidence that this land is a land of tremendous blessing. It's a land of tremendous provision. It's everything God said. However... Let's look in verse 24, 26. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him, Moses, and said, We went to the land which you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. In other words, what God said about it is true. I'm sure God felt very good now that they were agreeing with him. In other words, everything God says about this land is the truth. Well, look at this next word. Nevertheless, the people. So what they're saying in essence is, God's told us the truth, but. God's word about this is true, but. They're going to tell them something else that they saw with their eyes. Again, it's not what you see, it's what you do with what you see. If what you see contradicts what God said, then you believe what God said, not what you see. You get out there to merge on 195 going home today, 
and you see an 18-wheeler bearing down on you, you better believe what you see. But we all have to go somewhere, Monday, we don't want to go. Your funeral. All right. They brought back to them word to them. Verse 27. Now watch what's going to happen here. This is just the information. Then they told them. Nevertheless, the people... Look, now what they're going to do is they're going to take what they saw and they're going to give it meaning. Because the issue here is whether they can do what God said. God said, I've given you this land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I have given it to you. They've gone in and they said, everything God said about that land is true. But, we saw, we saw something else in the land. And now they're going to interpret what they saw, what it means to them. And what God said. Are you following me? Okay. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified. They're very large. Moreover, even if that's not bad enough, we saw the descendants of Anak there. They were extremely big people. Some translations say giants. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. And now Caleb quieted the people before Moses. He was one of the spies. He said, let us go up one and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able. See, there's the disagreement. They all saw the same thing. All twelve saw physically the same information. And of those twelve, two of them are going to interpret what they saw in light of what God said. The other ten are going to look at what they saw and give that authority over what God said and draw a conclusion from what they saw that's greater than what God said would happen. So Josh, Caleb quiets the people and says, We are well able. And these other ten who have gone up with him said, We're not able to go against the people. Now here's the conclusions that they're drawing. This is what's going on in their mind. It wasn't going on on a battlefield. It wasn't going on in front of them. They saw something. They heard what God said. They saw something. And their mind is forming pictures of what's going to happen. Nothing's happened yet. But they've already gone there. They're making decisions based on something that only exists in their mind that's contrary to what God said. For they are stronger than we. How do they know that? How do they know that? And they gave the children of Israel, the New King James says bad, some translations say an evil report of the land which they spied out, saying, the land through which we've gone has spies in its land, that its land devours its inhabitants. How do they know that? And all the people who we saw in it are men of great stature. That's a lie. Because if you go back and look at the list of the people they saw there, there's only one tribe that was of great stature, but now what's happened is in their mind. See, the more you dwell on something, the bigger it gets in your mind. 
the more you think of what the threat is, the more you look at the symptoms, the more you think about the bills, the more you think about those things, the bigger they get in your mind until they overcloud things which you know are true. And all the people we saw in here are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. How do they know how these enemies saw them? But it's become real in their mind. Why did it become real in their mind? The moment you take your confidence and eyes off of what God said, and you begin to lean to your own understanding about something, then you have moved into the realm, out of God's realm, and you've moved into the realm of your own mind. Where God is not God. And where you will limit what God can do. Because your mind is limited by its understanding and by its experiences. God is unlimited. God is unlimited. When you choose, when you, and it's a choice, when you choose, I'm not denying, there were enemies in there. They were there. But they're drawing their own conclusions about what those enemies mean for what God has said they were going to do. Now, just by way of explanation here, you don't need to look there, but if you go to Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, I just want to read you something. Because this is 40 years later, when they do go into the promised land, they send spies in and, and they visit Rahab. And this is what Rahab has to say. Joshua 2, oh, it's Judges. Yeah, go there. Joshua 2, verse 8. Now, this is what Rahab is telling the next generation. She's living in Jericho. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. That the terror of you has fallen on us. That all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you, because we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites when you were on the other side of the Jordan of Shion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we saw, soon as we heard these things, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither was there any more any courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heaven above and on the earth beneath. That's one of the giants. That's one of the giants. Now she wasn't physically one of them. That's one of the people that she was, that's what was going on in, the, in their enemies' minds. The devil will tell you he's going to destroy you, but you don't know what's going on in his mind. He's scared of you. He's scared you're going to find out who you are in Christ. He's scared you're going to find out what that word will do if you don't move off of it. He's scared you're going to find out what the power of the Holy Spirit is in you. He's scared shaking in his boots, but he's not going to tell you that. He's a deceiver. 
Stop and realize this again. I've told you before. Sometimes it's just common sense. If he were as powerful as he wants you to believe, he wouldn't need to deceive you, would he? He has to deceive because he doesn't have the power. What he has to do is get you to use the power God gave you to use against him to use it against yourself. And he's very good at that because we're so good at listening to him because we don't stand simply on what God has said. So here they are saying, we can't do this. Even though God said we can do it, we've been there, we've looked, we've heard, we've seen these people. And they're giants. See, when we, they started looking at them and interpreting them where their mind ran, he said, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. Some of you see yourself as just a grasshopper. In the face of what you're dealing with, you, seem, you see yourself as helpless, hopeless, a victim. You see yourself as any way but what God sees you. God sees you as his child with his spirit in you and his word. That's all Jesus had. He didn't have some advantage because he was the, the second person of the God. And Philippians 2 said he let all that go. He had everything you have. The difference is he did not doubt. He stood on what God had said. And when the thoughts came and the temptations came, he did what we saw last week in Luke 4. He said, I'm not going over there. It is written. That's all I know. That's all. I only care what God says about it. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it feels like. I don't care what the enemy says. All I care about is what has God said about it. That's all I care. I don't care what my sense, my eyes are telling me. I don't care what my body's telling me. I don't care what my ears are telling me. What has God said? And that's it.